Thank you, Sarah Beth. And good morning and welcome again to Trinity Heights virtual service. And let me begin here this morning. In the 1700s, John Mitchell in England and Pierre Simon Laplace in France, independently of each other, thought their way out of the box, or rather into the box. What they imagined was what would happen if a huge mass were crammed into a tiny, incredibly small volume. What happens if a huge mass are crammed into an incredibly small volume? And both of them conjectured that the gravitational forces in that situation would mean that nothing, not even light, would escape. They were, of course, back in the 1700s, imagining what we would now have come to know as black holes. But John Mitchell took the thought experiment even further, and he said that even if these objects, which would probably be invisible, we wouldn't be able to see them, they may well reveal themselves if there was a large star in orbit around them. Can, can you imagine in the 1700s, both these men were talking about these invisible objects that might reveal themselves depending on their effects on the objects around them. Even uh, Albert Einstein, who came up with the math that actually helped prove the existence of black holes, he didn't actually believe in the existence, the actual existence of actual black holes. Can you imagine what it would have been like for uh, this Englishman sitting in a pub talking about this over a pint with his friends, or that Frenchman sitting in a bistro talking about this with his friends over a fine French wine? I'm sure their friends would have thought they were completely loony. But fast forward to the 20th century. In the uh, early 1970s, British astronomers Lewis Webster and Paul Murden at the Royal Greenwich Observatory and Thomas Bolton, a student at the University of Toronto, independently of each other, announced the discovery of a massive but invisible object in orbit around a blue star over 6,000 light years away. The object, of course, was the first black hole to be identified. Not seen, but inferred, from what was going on around it through its interaction with other matter and with electromagnetic radiation. This week, I want to consider the question, did the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happen? Paul says, as we heard in our reading at the beginning of the service, Paul says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then we are to be pitied more than all people. Because, of course, as we were saying last week, all Christian hope for the future and meaning in the Christian's life here and now is integrated with the, it's intertwined with the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, of course, Paul says, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we are to be pitied more than all people. So, did it actually happen? This is a very important question for the Apostle Paul. And as we try to answer that question, we find ourselves in a similar situation to those who thought about, dreamed about, and eventually discovered black holes. It's similar at a number of levels. First of all, it seems completely loony. But try having this conversation with your friends about the physical bodily resurrection of the dead, of Jesus or anyone else, um, over a pint 
or even after over several pints, it would probably seem completely loony. Uh, I think I've told you before about a friend of mine who was an agnostic at the time, a skeptic, and when I mentioned the resurrection, uh, they said, well, that sounds more like a zombie apocalypse. So, yeah, it, it's people who talk about this obviously are going to come off um, as um, perhaps being just a little off. And second, uh, it's like the black hole, it's invisible uh, in the sense that we're not witnesses to the resurrection. It's not something we actually get to see. But the third similarity, and I hope that this will be uh, helpful to us, just like the scientists can infer the presence of a black hole by observing the effects that the black hole has on the objects around it, uh, the historian can do something similar with the resurrection. Because when anything happens, anything at all, when it really happens, it has secondary effects. So we can observe the effects of the supposed resurrection on the people, community and culture orbiting around the event, or, or maybe to keep the analogy going, the resurrection is the event horizon, if you like, the place where all the facts, all the data, all the cultural, historical information converge. If the resurrection is a good historical hypothesis to explain all of that, then it will do what all good historical hypotheses do. It will account for as much of the data surrounding it as possible and it will help us see how all of that data is integrated and, and fits together. It will show us that it sort of brings some sort of coherence to all the, the many historical facts surrounding it. Now, of course, I can't present all of the historical uh, evidence this morning, but I do want to suggest one particular way uh, that has been uh, put forward by the historian and New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. And I want to start this morning with his observation when he says this, what people believe about life after death tends to be very conservative. In other words, foundational beliefs people have about death tend to be very stable or at least readily retrieved when they're confronted with the circumstances of death. So he says, what people believe about life after death tends to be very conservative. Faced with death and bereavement, people lurch back to the safety of what they heard or learned before, often as young children. What people believe about death and the ways in which these beliefs find expression is notoriously one of the most conservative features of a culture. For example, I, I remember a friend of mine was on a plane going to India uh, to go to her aunt's funeral and her dad, whose sister had just died, started talking about reincarnation and started wondering if his sister's soul had transmigrated into the womb of, of my friend's cousin, his niece. He started talking about reincarnation and my friend was rather taken aback because she was thinking, but, but dad, you don't believe any of this because you're, you're an avowed atheist, you don't believe in reincarnation, but faced with his sister's death, he quickly swerved back uh, to these familiar ideas he was taught as a kid. 
Uh, another friend of mine was saying that when her uh, grandmother uh, passed away, her mum started talking about heaven and the post-mortem experience of going to be with God. And again, my friend was somewhat taken aback because she was thinking, but mum, you have more new age beliefs. You don't believe any of this stuff. But again, faced with death, uh, she sort of reverted back to things that she believed in her youth. The point I'm trying to make here is that we're conservative when it comes to death. So that when an entire group of people together make some major shift in beliefs about death, this is very unusual. And as it happens, within Jewish belief, the early church made several significant modifications to their belief about life after death that were quite new, and this requires historical explanation. Now, I, I can't present all the changes in belief that took place, but I've selected four of them to present to you this morning. First of all, there was no spectrum of belief about life after death. Now, the early Christians were drawn from many different strands of Judaism, and, and many of them came from different pagan backgrounds. So, so they came from this broad spectrum of beliefs about life beyond death, but all of them modified that belief to focus on one single point on the spectrum, the resurrection. Now, with plenty of evidence, we have plenty of evidence that the church would debate all sorts of things. They didn't all agree on everything all of the time. There were all sorts of debates that were going on in the early church. We have the letters of Paul and the other apostles to prove that. But there is just this, there's no spectrum of belief when it comes to life after death. There's just this one thing, resurrection. And the virtual unanimity on the resurrection stands out. So that's the first thing. This leads to the second odd change. In Second Temple Judaism, resurrection is important, but not that important. There are, in fact, lots of lengthy works that never mention the question, let alone this answer. Resurrection is, in Jewish literature, a sort of a peripheral topic. But in early Christianity, resurrection moves from the circumference to the centre. Take away the resurrection and you lose the entire New Testament and most of the second century church fathers as well. So not only is there no spectrum of belief about life after death, there's just this one thing. But this one thing that now becomes central was actually used to be on the periphery, but, but now it moves to the centre. So those are two major shifts in belief about life after death. The third is that the resurrection becomes an event that is split in two. No first century Jew prior to Easter expected the resurrection to be anything other than a large scale event happening to all God's people or perhaps to the entire human race as part of the sudden event in which God's kingdom would finally come to earth. There is no suggestion that one person would rise from the dead in advance of all the rest. But this was now seen as an inauguration which consisted of the resurrection happening to one person in the middle of history in advance of its great final occurrence 
anticipating and guaranteeing the final resurrection of God's people at the end of history. So suddenly the resurrection becomes this split event, another strange mutation or modification to belief. And the fourth and final mutation that I want to present today is that of Jewish belief was never associated with, of resurrection, was never associated with messiahship. Nobody in Judaism expected the Messiah to die, and therefore nobody was expecting uh, or imagined that the Messiah would rise from the dead. And T. White puts it this way, he says, if your expectation is that the Messiah was supposed to fight victorious battles against the wicked pagans to literally rebuild and cleanse the temple once and for all and to bring God's justice into the world, well then, Jesus had failed spectacularly. He had done none of these things. So no Jew with an understanding of how the language of messiahship worked would have thought after Jesus' crucifixion that he was in fact the Lord's anointed. There were other messianic movements, prophetic movements in the couple of centuries either side of Jesus. They would routinely end with the violent death of the central supposedly messianic figure and that would be that. So anyone who thinks that the disciples were just so overwhelmed with grief that they comforted themselves with this belief in the resurrection and tried to persuade themselves that Jesus had been raised from the dead even though they knew it hadn't happened, just doesn't understand first century Israel under Roman occupation and what Jewish people were longing for and hoping for. It it depoliticizes these people. It turns them into cardboard cutouts, two-dimensional figures. It's, It's like taking a progressive New Yorker and stripping them of all their political beliefs. It doesn't recognize the political ambitions of people under occupation. Well, This is just some of the evidence, uh, some of the strange shifts in belief that require historical explanation. Again, the historical argument for the resurrection is far more extensive, uh, but hopefully this has suggested one approach we might take to examining this question at the heart of the Christian faith. Because if Christ were not raised from the dead, then we are to be pitied more than all people. I want to end with one final quote from N.T. Wright. He says this, In any other historical inquiry, the answer would be so obvious that it would hardly need saying. Here, of course, this obvious answer, well, it actually happened, is so shocking, so earth-shattering, that we rightly pause before leaping into the unknown. And here indeed, as some sceptical friends have cheerfully pointed out to me, It is always possible for anyone to follow the argument so far and to say simply, I don't have a good explanation for what happened to cause the empty tomb and the appearances, but I choose to maintain my belief that dead people don't rise and therefore conclude that something else must have happened, even though we can't tell what it was. That is fine. I respect that position, but I simply note that it is indeed then a matter of choice, not a matter of saying that something called scientific historiography forces us to take that route. But at this moment in the argument, all the signposts are pointing in one direction. 
the evidence of the res for the resurrection is is there. It, the, all the historical ev evidence points towards it. But of course, yes, someone can shrug our shoulders and we can say, well, yes, I don't have a good explanation for all this historical data, um, but uh, there it is. I, I don't know what to do with that and just leave it alone. And that's a safe route to take. Everything remains untouched and unchanged. But perhaps a more interesting route to take would be to ask, what would happen if I dared to believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? What shape would my life take? What shape would humanity take in the future? Amen.